take a look back on 2018 and viewed through the lenses of time and the myriad of conversations and voices heard on the Overdrive Radio podcast, 2018 might well be dubbed the year of ticky-tack and more serious issues related to the implementation of, what else, the electronic logging device mandate. Owner-operator's adjustments in light of that rule, which started being enforced in a significant way on April 1st of 2018, ride over almost the entirety of the top 10 most listened to episodes here, including some mailbag rounds of callers' messages on related issues that very nearly made the top 10 themselves. Speaking of that, a recent message from our podcast line, 530-408-6423, which you can call anytime to weigh in on an issue you think needs to be aired or to share a tip, as it were. A recent message showed at least some measure of success in adjustment using the Garmin ELD, one of the few that comes free of an ongoing subscription. Hey, I'm a trucker from uh, Western Washington. Um, we use the Garmin ELD. It was a purchase once and no monthly subscription, which is why we bought that one. Um, it rarely has issues, and I've traced all of the issues it has had to a power on and off type issue. When you go to start the truck, if the batteries are low, the ELD may disconnect and not want to reconnect until you pull it out and then put it back in. Then, of course, you will get a no power error. Um, but aside from that, we've had no hardware problems. Um, we have had a couple of software issues where the uh, miles will be very, very odd for one or two records, and it will show us driving 14,000-plus miles in a couple of hours. And unfortunately, my partner isn't quite that fast, so um, I'm, I am sometimes, but we won't go there. Uh, we uh, also have um, the re the biggest problem with the ELD are the reports. The reports are very difficult to actually read. Um, on a side note, the DOT officers don't really want to read them either, so um, uh, we really haven't had any real big problems using the Garmin. Um, what I wish is the Garmin had better reporting capabilities, its output. Um, if that was better, we would never consider using another. A big thanks to the caller, the Intel. I'm Todd Dills, and in this episode of the Overdrive Radio Podcast, take a run back through some of the most memorable moments from the top ten most listened to episodes of this year. From Mark Kerbison's skepticism of any wisdom present in the oft-repeated adage, you should have planned better. To more than two podcasts dedicated to recognizing the many best avoided games brokers play in their contracts with carriers, the Amazon effect on freight patterns and how owner-operators are, or are not, adjusting in the drive-in world, and much, much more. Up first is number 10, the fairly recent early December broadcast conversation with Iowa-based owner-operator Scott Hampton, in part about his 75K restoration of his 2000 feet 379, e log exempt, of course, in advance of the mandate. 
Hampton also told the story of his participation in That's a Big Ten Four on DC in October, where around 50 owner-operators and drivers parked bobtail rigs for a truck show and demonstration out on the National Mall. The convoy out, then, produced what you might call impromptu highway stop photo ops for participants along I-395 and I-95, drawing plenty subsequent online attention, both positive and negative, of course. Owner-operator Hampton, who was in the rear of the convoy, almost from the get-go, told the dramatic story of the reality behind how one of those pictures came to be when he was back at the front. And we decided to be in the left lane. Uh, just thought that would be the spot to be, you know, just get in the left lane and do our thing and get out of town. And not two minutes after we had all gotten in the left lane and we were rolling along, yeah, I look at my rear, rear mirror and there's a state patrol back there. Lights, he was coming up pretty hard and lights were flaring and, and he's pointing to the left shoulder and I didn't know where he wanted me. I'd started to move into the center lane and he's adamant about me getting on the shoulder there in the left up against the concrete barrier. I said, oh, so I, so I pull over and I, I've got Mike Landis on the phone and I holler on the radio that I just got pulled over. And of course, some of the guys start screaming, just, just don't stop, don't stop. I said, well, that doesn't seem like a very good idea, but the state patrolman's trying to pull me over. I'm just going to abide by the rules here. So I pull over, and I get out of the truck, and by the time I get back to the drive tires and meet him at the drive tires, there's a second state patrolman behind him, and there's a third one on the northbound side, just like that. There's three state patrolmen. I come from nowhere. And, of course, everybody else kept going. I'm the only one that stopped. <laughs> and um, they asked me what we're doing. I told them, he goes, you can't be in the left lane. And, and I said, I know we, we just thought, he said, no, no commercials, and you guys need to be in the right lane. And he said their phones were just blowing up, just uh, people were calling in left and right. right. And he goes, you know, I could write you a bunch of tickets right now. I said, I know that. Please don't. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> And, and he didn't. He just told me. I, he goes, you got the guy in the front? I said, yep. I said, you guys. He had actually recommended that we pull into the scale house up there and just get reorganized. Uh, Mike said that they were already in the right lane and they were, you know, just they were going to wait for me to catch up, just roll along. And um, so officer said, you guys be cool, be safe, just get in the right lane, behave yourself, um, you know, and, and get on down to the fairgrounds. Of course, he asked us where we were going. We told him. And he said, he, they didn't know that we were coming out of D.C. I said, well, that's – somebody dropped the ball on your end because I know that they called somebody and said, hey, we're leaving D.C. So he didn't get the message. He didn't get the memo. Um, right. He wished that somebody would have told him that we were that we were leaving. They would have helped escort us out. But so be it, it. It didn't turn out that way. So we shook hands. He sent us on our way. So I'm – at this point, I'm six or seven miles behind him, you know, and I can kind of hear him real faint on the – the radio and and uh, I'm catching up. I'm catching up. They're going, you know. I'm running speed limit. Well, in the meantime, that's when they did the first stop. Immediately after he turned me loose, and I'm out of radio range. That's when they did the first stop on 395. And yes. the reason they did it was the traffic came to a stop. So when the traffic started rolling again, they just didn't move. They just sat there for a little bit longer, took a couple pictures, yada, yada, yada. I didn't know about that one on 395 until we got back to the fairgrounds. So 
I'm catching up to him. I hear him on a radio, and I decided to get – I kept looking for signs, and I decided to get into the express lane because I didn't see any signs that said I wasn't supposed to be there. So I got an express lane, so I figured I'd catch up to him, and I find out later Brian uh, Bushnell from Virginia told me, nah, that wasn't a good idea. You're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as I'm coming up on him in the express lane, and I'm, I'm starting to see him kind of spread out a little bit, they weren't in single file in the right lane. They were kind of sporadic all over the place. And that's when I see Joe Denny pull in the middle and stop. So this is, to me, this is the first time they've done that. I didn't Because okay. I didn't know about the first one. So I'm like, okay, these guys are going to get this out of their system. And all right, they're doing their thing. And by the time I got past them, got back over in the travel lanes, and I got over on the right shoulder, and I was just had my four ways on. I was just going real slow, waiting for them yeah. to catch back up. Traffic wasn't too heavy, you know, and they start kind of coming up there. And that's when they, as they catch up to me, they go back into block, all four lanes again. So oh, okay. I'm on the right shoulder there, and then a, the sixth guy, Ron, pulls up on the inside left shoulder, and they decide to stop again. And I. And if you look at that picture, my door is standing open, and I'm at standing at Brian Raze's Blue Peterbilt door. And if you see that picture, and then you listen to the video that Todd the said the second video that Todd Campbell posted, you'll okay. hear Brian saying, "We got to go, we got to go, we got to go. Everybody get in the right lane," because I had just got done telling him that the cops warned us not to do this and we need to behave ourselves the rest of the way down to the fairgrounds. Number nine in the top podcast rankings was all about the effects of tight capacity, in part exacerbated by the ELD mandate, particularly early in the year, and what some further called the, quote, Amazon effect of tighter delivery windows, shippers levering fines on receivers and vice versa, and more. This was part of a panel of brokers at truckstop.com's Connected User Conference in May, largely featuring Tucker Company Worldwide's Jeff Tucker, who described potential upside both for brokers and the small carriers and owner-ops who are their principal business partners. In my career, I see an opportunity to see this industry segment into high performers and everyone else. Right now, we're part of an everyone else culture. And what I mean by that is, uh, if you know, Walmart had a, has a compliance fee regime. Uh, and, if, and I'll just, I'll, I'm going to simplify it as best I can just so we get to the point. You used to be able to deliver the day before, the day of, the day after to Walmart. And, and if you didn't, at 90% or 80%, whatever the case was, you had to pay a fee to Walmart. Walmart changed that compliance fee regime last April to, you had to deliver on the day of, not the day before, the day after. So they, they wiped out two thirds, right, of their delivery window to the day of. And oh, by the way, they amped up the penalty. The penalty was if you, and they're, they're ramping up to try to get 90% all of their deliveries on that on that day. You don't deliver, you didn't deliver to a 90% uh, percentile delivery, you would have to pay 3% of your entire invoice value to everything that you sent to Walmart for the entire quarter. I have, a, I have two customers that that equals 
uh, a million and a half to two million dollars of, of, of value. I'm, I'm going to be visiting with uh, a, a major retailer tomorrow and a whole bunch of manufacturers that go into this retailer to talk about these issues, right? Now, Walmart just opened up about a month ago. Walmart opened up the day before. So they can now deliver the day before and the day of without penalty. But 3% of the invoice value for the entire quarter, right? That's enormous if you've been delivering into Walmart for a long time. As soon as Walmart did it, Target had their own regime, Walgreens has their own regime, and, and, and trickle down the line that the, the uh, grocery retailers all have their own regime. So um, the group that I'm going to be talking to are all manufacturers tomorrow, and, and I, I had a chance to speak with them. They're stealing money. They, they're trying to keep up with the payments to the retailers for not getting these dollars, uh, uh, the, the deliveries. They're stealing money from advertising and marketing to pay compliance fees. So, so why does this matter? Why does any of it matter? It matters because I said earlier, I got that one carrier that doesn't, uh, that, that appears to have delivered if it gets within like a mile of the destination. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but not that much badly. Uh, most of my customers, and I have decent sized customers, most of my, with good TMSs, most of my customers have no clue when their freight delivers, unless they get a complaint, right? Their TMS doesn't tell them that. Um, they depend on us and their carriers to give them one-time data. Well, guess what? When they get a big old bill for a million dollars or $780,000 for a bunch of missed deliveries where they thought their data shows them from their carriers that have been fed into the TMS, that they were on time, well, there's going to be hell to pay. And there is. There's a lot of hell being paid right now. So point is, if we in this room can be able to provide high-level service, this is getting C-level. One of the largest customers in the companies in this space told me that it's his entire job is to whittle down compliance fees and figure this out. It's his entire job. And this guy's a a major voice in the industry. His entire job is to figure this out for his company. We've got the opportunity, if you're competent, to actually get paid more, to be competent for the first time in our lives, in our careers, than the guy who's incompetent. In short, as an attentive listener will have noted, Tucker's talking about a way to use that tracking data provided by an ELD or other device to, in his case as a broker, and in your case as a carrier, dealing with a direct shipper, to actually make money by having effective communication systems in place to separate you from the pack. Something not common or even possible over the decades in a historically commoditized trucking business, or so he argues. Speaking of tighter delivery windows, the old should have planned better advice only goes so far with complications thrown at truckers on the road and the ELD mandate. Number eight in our podcast top ten was my early year conversation with Mark Kirbyson about his processed chicken delivery business hauling the lane between Niagara and ports in Delaware and elsewhere on the East Coast. Often enough hauling bananas back. Kirbyson's round was previously doable most often within logbook limitations but after the switch to ELDs the small fleet adopted the Big Road ELD in December of 2017 with the initial enforcement deadline. That was not the case any longer due to a variety of factors, as he explains. The point of it is we started on December 18th. We, we go from there 
and um, every week. One week, uh, it was the shipper didn't get me unloaded in time because there was too many trucks and they're all on e-log now, so there's too many trucks coming at one time, first thing in the morning. Right. So he didn't get me unloaded. The next time was the load from the port didn't come out of the port for like eight hours later. So now once you have one day that you are delayed, the rest of the week is all delayed. The whole week is delayed. You can't make it up. You can't fix it. You There is no repair. The third week was when I had an accident on the 90, and I was stuck on the 90 for three hours. Well, under the law states that you can extend your day by an hour or two hours because of unforeseen things. How do you do that on an electronic log? You can't. The guidance, the guidance I've heard on that is just, uh, you know, use your use your annotations in the log. Go ahead and let it record its violation, and use the annotations in the log to explain the circumstances uh, as you would have, I guess, on a on a paper log. Um, but but yeah, you know, it, it's still the system itself is recording violation whether you do that or not. And, and uh, you know, it's easy for an inspector to just look at that and go, "Well, there's a violation." You know, exactly. He's going to give you. A, he could say he's going to give you a fine anyway, right? And that's and you're stuck fighting that fine. So now you got to pay out lawyers, and now you got to spend a day in a courtroom, and now you got to travel to that courthouse, and there's so much involved there to fight that fine. Yep. Number seven in the ranking sees us returning straight to the scene on the National Mall with That's a Big 10-4 on D.C., where I talked with Doug Hasner, following up on the owner-operator's tasing out on D.C. streets by district police in April, and his arrest. His case was ultimately thrown out completely, as readers learned here. More importantly, perhaps, we heard from Campbell Farms owner-operator Todd Campbell of Ohio. Though his trucking operation is exempt from the mandate, given his mostly short-haul runs, he laid out the mostly economic case for his own opposition to the ELD mandate that presented a bit of cognitive dissonance for owner-operators relaying that message to members of the general public, as I explained in October while setting up his point on the matter. For many owner-operators, I know the macro market effects of the mandate have played part, at least in boosting rates possible to command and spot and contract negotiations. For those opposed to ELDs, pitching that message to the general public is thus presenting something of a positive as a negative, as those increased rates are increased costs for shippers, ultimately flowing into the products on the shelves. You know, what you just use, you think about this kind of a store and a nickel to order, a nickel to a quarter yeah. per item. Right. Think about that. Yeah. 20 um, items in your cart, four times a month. Right. That's, you know. Fifty, seventy-five dollars, really easy. Yeah. Could be. I mean, depending on how much stuff you buy or how big your family is. Yeah. Spread out over the entire country, it's a ton of money. Yes. Yes. And all, and, and you can all stem it back to an ELD mandate. Yeah. You really can. They don't, they don't want to believe it that way, but you really can go clear back to that. It's making a huge impact. And there's been too much diversion coming out of the White House to let the ELD mandate be the reason for it. There's too many other things going on in the world that we're involved in. They can say it. That's the reason for it. Right. It's not. <laughs> it's really simple, and truckers know the simple side of it. Nobody else wants to admit the simple side. Speaking of simplicity, the harrowing story of Midnight Express small fleet owner-operator Andre Jackson of Mississippi clearly struck a chord with many 
uh, for its basic humanity. It came in at number six in the podcast top ten. Jackson suffered what's commonly known as a widowmaker heart attack at the Great American Trucking Show five years ago, then experiencing years of recovery, which he made with the help of a hard-working spouse. He describes all of that in this excerpt from the podcast. We ended up losing our homes, a three-story three home, down to a one-bedroom apartment. Um, we watched one vehicle after the next being towed away through repossession. Um, we're down to a 99 Tahoe. Um, I ended up wearing a life vest. I had two defibrillator paddles in my back and one in my side, and I wore an electronic box on my side, which they did an EKG on me 24 hours a day. My heart fell down to, I think they said, 5 or 6%, at which at that time they put me into sudden death stage, and which I was basically what they said was I could walk and fall out and die at any moment. I lost uh, the trucks I had worked so hard to obtain. Um, but my wife, she never gave up on anything with me. Um, the doctors gave me a list and said, these are the things you need to do. And if you want to try and survive this, and um, what my wife did at that moment, everything in the kitchen that was bad, she got rid of and gave away. And she went out and shopped on that list. And she said, what I'm going to do, everything you have to do, I'm going to do it with you to make sure we do it together to try and get you through this. And my wife would um, go to work at 3 in the morning. Her name is Naomi Jackson. She would go to work at 3 in the morning at the Marriott Hotel and cook to about 12 noon, come back, um, give me my bath, because um, at that point I couldn't do much for myself. Um, give me my bath, um, get me situated, get my medication, things like that. Or um, and Then she would go out and do side work or whatever to help us get over the hump. And um, she never given up on me, never regretted anything with me. And we managed to overcome our situation. Um, it was, it took years to get past our situation that we was um, going through. That started in 2013, uh, Andre. So how, you know, I mean, how long did this go on where you basically were in a situation where you couldn't even, you didn't really have the strength to get around? Was it, uh, was it a number of years after that? It was all around about two years, um, and, okay. I, and it made me feel less than a man because I had to watch my wife get up out in the snow and ice and go out and try to make income for us. It made me feel yeah. less than a man being that I was the, the major provider for our family. Um, so we went through the ordeal probably about two years, and as a result, I had another heart attack. Oh, and no. I had another heart attack. So I ended up having five of them. So I went through five heart attacks. So at the present moment, um, I got about eight or nine stents in my chest now. And also, um, the lower part of my heart can't be repaired anymore. So if I was to have a heart attack there again, I, I wouldn't survive it because it can't repair the area anymore because it's gotten too small. Initially, when um, I started going for my medical, they initially were only giving me a 30-day card. So every 30 okay. days, I would have to go back for a 30-day card. Then eventually, it went to 90 days. Then eventually, it went to six months. So at the present moment, I, um, every six months, I had to redo my card. What do you have to do there? Do you have are, are you um, are you required to do like a stress test and some of that other stuff that I've I've heard about for folks that have heart attacks to be cleared back? Do you have to do that every time, or do you just have to do that first time or two? I have to I have to perform a stress test each time I go out to get the card. 
Because what okay. happened to me was the very first time they gave me a stress test, I had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, so, really? Oh, no, wow. Yeah, the very first yeah. time I, I went to try and get my medical card, and I started performing the stress test, I had a heart attack, ended up in surgery right away. But now I'm able to perform the stress test. I went from 6% to my heart being now at 26 I spoke with Jackson again following that episode in early November. At the time, he was putting into service a third truck with the driver and what had been a two-truck fleet when we first spoke. Moving forward, that is, with aggressive expansion plans put in place with his business partner and Atlanta-based owner-op Dante Ogletree. Number five in the top ten was all about the detention problem, but in this case an example of the issue taken to its ultimate, ultimate extreme. As we've heard from others in the years past, Amazon distribution centers are some of the worst when it comes to unloading trailers. In Gary and Undina Carraway's case, leased to Mercer and owning their own trailer, the result was a full week and more of the trailers stuck in limbo at the facility as they did a power-only load or two for Mercer as reps tried to sort it out with Amazon and the 3PL on the load. Here's Gary Carraway describing the growing worry he felt after first mistake not noticing a 48-hour window for unload loaded on his rate confirmation to begin with, and then dropping his trailer at the facility, ultimately, for unload. The couple then traveled to a nearby truck stop, crossing their fingers for a quick turn at the facility, which was in Edwardsville, Illinois. Okay, great. Directions. We got over there, got to the pilot, and it's wall-to-wall with golf tips. I said, wow. Amazon does a lot of business here, you know, wow, how about that? You know, there's other warehouses around there too. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, don't think much more about it. We get up the next morning and have breakfast at the Denny's inside. And um, a guy happens to make a comment that he's been there since Thursday. I go, excuse me? Thursday? It's Sunday? Yeah, and they still haven't got my damn trailer done. I go down there every day. They won't give me a phone number to call. I got to physically go down there, blah, blah, blah. Ah, oh, crap. Hey, Mercer. We, you know, Morning. this is what I got. You know, hang in there, you know. you know. None of us are thinking it, it can't be that bad. It's got to be an isolated deal, right? Right, right. <clears throat> There's another driver. And another driver. And then, You're just hearing from more and more of them as the time yeah. goes by. Yeah. And then uh, my 48 hours are up. Trailer's not done. I call Hub Group. That's who everything is through. That's who called me. And, yeah. you know, if there's any problems, let us know. Blah, blah, blah. They're kind of like okay. the, 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 the logistics the provider with yeah. right. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> That's who Mercer booked it through. So they couldn't give me anything on there. They said, I'll give you a call back. I didn't hear back. Uh, next, another day has gone by. And. I'm talking Mercer, and well, I'll tell you what, we've got a couple FedEx loads that we can put you on, power only. So we'll let you do those, you know, and make some money, and hopefully we'll get all this done. We'll pay you deadhead to go down there and get that, you know, and we'll pay you deadhead to come back. <clears throat> okay, great. You know, if they'll want to do that, at least we'll be making up. The Caraways were, in fact, ultimately compensated for use of the trailer while it sat for well upward a week. But operators elsewhere haven't been so lucky. As another reader quipped some time ago, seems like the 800-pound supply chain gorilla that is Amazon is well still in need of a few good lumpers. Without them, tracking data from ELD systems won't do a bit of good 
greasing the skids, getting product in and out. Speaking of VLDs, yet again, I know. Number four in the series told the story of a roadside stop that netted, among other things, an out-of-service order for independent owner operator John Hose of Texas. The issue wasn't that Hose was out of compliance with the rules there in Missouri, but his ELD happened to be one, that of the 120 company, which touted itself as driver-friendly in the run-up to the mandate in a variety of ways and sold an untold number of its no-subscription FELD units as the lowest-priced device on the market, only to be shuttered within a couple months of hard enforcement of the mandate amid mounting technical difficulties and choked-off cash flow from its principal investor, the Trimble Companies. For Hose, that all sent frustration with the mandate and the company into the stratosphere, and justifiably so. Yeah, I was trying to avoid subscription to a one-time fee, and that was what was really, that lured me there. Plus, plus their attitude, uh, 120 I was really fond of because they were, they carried an attitude of really trying to help the owner-operator, the independent, that was their focus, their main focus. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the underdog, should we say. Um, How did the, um, the, the experience of, of that device go over the months leading into uh, its uh, its demise, as it were, uh, just about a month or so ago here? Well, you know, I told you I have an IT, IT degree. I, you know, I've got some background in computer, so I'm no stranger yeah. to the rain, you know. So I can only imagine what, what would have been for an owner-operator who's, you know, from the generation that wasn't allowed to have calculators in class. So um, I personally could not decipher what exactly was wrong mo a large portion of the time with my ELD, um, meaning that, uh, you know, if I had unauthorized time, things like that, that, that stuff that, you know, I knew that you needed to fix, things needed to be done. But for my ELD to connect to the truck, not connect to the truck, was connected to the truck, but it ain't now, these connection issues and things like that, even though it's showing up on my dev devices that they're connected, something wasn't jiving. I mean, I went all the way to yeah. changing the speed sensor in my Volvo. <laughs> I changed it thinking maybe it had something to do with it. You know, and I thought maybe there was some truck issues with the ELD. You know, I, I didn't know. And so, you know, I, the, the biggest red flag that first started it off is I contacted them to, uh, to get access to my logs to, you know, do whatever edits or whatever changes and make sure that that was all up to par. And, uh, when I called in, um, you know, I spoke to the girl, I said, I can't see my logs. And she's like, well, you know, she goes, what kind of device are you using? I said, well, I'm on Apple products. I mean, every, our whole office was, I geared up with Apple products for mobility and, um, you know, dependability, reliability. And, and uh, it just, uh, <laughs> she told me it wasn't, it wasn't visible on Apple products. And so that put me really pretty much stuck. Yeah, dragging out an old Intel Pentium uh, laptop and working from it. But, uh, you know, that was the big first big red flag was compatibility issues and uh, being able to see what I needed to do, um, along with really actually making sense of what was going wrong. You probably read the news recently about the Zed ELD, another of the original six other ELD devices with no monthly subscription fee required. It's ceasing service fully at the end of January 2019, too. With 120's long come to fruition failure, that leaves just four no monthly subscription devices remaining. The Blue Ink Technology device, uh, Continental's video road log, the Garvin, Garmin device the caller talked about up top of this podcast, and the Switchboard ELD. 
Clearly, ongoing design and customer service needs for providers with that business model for their products can be an issue. Hopefully we don't see more of this from any of these. If much of the subject matter for the top 10 podcasts for the year had some direct relationship to the ELD mandate, the top three show the focus shifting for many independents in the audience back to the occasionally fraught and often challenging relationship with freight partner brokers. A big part of that is contractual games brokers have played for years, occupying number three and number two slots. For the former, we took up Michigan-based small fleet owner Leander Richmond's frustration with some of the ridiculous expectations he feels brokers too often try to push down onto carriers. In particular, proof of delivery expectations. New technology, cell phones, pictures, um, now they are demanding, and I, some of them absolutely demanding, to have copies of the paperwork within a certain amount of hours after delivery. The most ridiculous one that, uh, example that we saw was a, a broker out of California that slipped onto his rate confirmation that if they did not receive a copy of the rate confirmation or the um, proof of delivery within four hours after delivering, that we, the carrier, would waive 100% of our claim to the um, to payment. Okay, well, needless to say that <laughs> I called this guy up. I said, "Dude, I can't sign this," and he he was arrogant about it. Well, fine, I'll find someone else. And I'm thinking to myself, that's an awfully arrogant attitude for someone who owns a telephone. Right. Um, but the what's more ridiculous about that to me is that he can be that arrogant with such a ridiculous clause on his contract that more people <clears throat> haven't called him on it, and that that anybody would ever even sign something like that. Um, one of the things that we have lately now I've gotten, I've gotten uh, which was what prompted my email to you last week, mm-hmm. I literally had, I can't remember if it was three or phone calls all at the same time, all with people wanting PODs and all for loads that had just delivered either that day or within a previous 24-hour period. And I finally, unfortunately, I went to an unprofessional level and I conferenced them all together and I said, guys, we're in the business of hauling freight. And I apologize if this seems rude, it's not intended to. When I have time, I will get these documents to you. But right now I'm trying to move my trucks, the thing that make us money, which we accomplished for you. Um, only one of them had a problem with it. The others kind of went, yeah, okay, that, that's understandable and acceptable. Right. But yeah, the the standard that's changing for these guys or the standard that they're trying to place upon us as the carrier is nuts. And the reasons for it are crazy. I, I've asked them, dude, do you really need this right now? Most of them lie and say, yes, my customer has to have it or they're going to cancel our business. Well, we've got direct customers. I actually had one person give me a legitimate excuse. And I said, you know what? I'll go through the trouble for that. Which was what? Um, his excuse was that their customer actually bills his customer for the machinery once they see the proof of delivery. And the faster they get it on yeah. their end, they can actually get their money, which is what they pay the broker with, and they pay us. 
And I was okay with that on, that was a specialized movement. The machinery was $400,000. That's fine. But when we're talking about a bag of sand, a load of sand or rock salt or something like that, that's totally worth $30,000, I don't think the world's going to fall apart. An alternate take of sorts on what you heard broker Jeff Tucker talking about earlier the rising expectations of shippers and receivers and by extension their broker partners when it comes to electronic communication and, as ever, on-time delivery. And when it comes to contractually forfeiting payment, the number two podcast of the year dealt directly with cargo claims offsetting rights and brokerage contracts, which small fleet owner Anna Vitoretta saw evidence of in a claim made by the receiver of one of two loads hauled for Bennett International Group mid-year. This podcast ran fairly recently, so you may have heard it if you're a regular listener. Nonetheless, here's my intro to what transportation, uh, transportation attorney Hank Seaton called the, quote, sucker's game, cargo off, offset or set-off clauses in carrier brokerage contracts. Beware what you sign, other operators, when getting set up with that broker. So notes transportation attorney Hank Seaton, who you heard up top in a brief conversation we had at the National Association of Small Trucking Companies annual meeting here in Nashville last month. I'm Todd Dills, this is Overdrive Radio, and Seton and I were talking specifically about the case of a Florida-based three-truck fleet run by Marta Vitoretta, who reached out to me about what she saw as the curious treatment of two loads her company hauled earlier this year for Bennett International Group. Vitoretta's cargo insurance company got a claim on the first flatbed load that she and her driver ultimately disputed. The photographic evidence they believe shows the damage couldn't have happened while in transit. To this point, that claim remains tied up in the insurance process, and meanwhile, both that and another load hauled by Vitoretta's fleet for the same broker have not been paid, she says. Vitoretta's attempts to collect were all rebuffed, including by the surety bond provider for the broker, she says, with whom she ultimately filed. When we talked, she didn't have ready access to the contract she signed during setup with Bennett 10 years ago, but as Seton noted, it likely holds the keys to explaining why the broker hasn't paid the small fleet owner for the first and second loads. In Seton's Rules of the Road book about contract law and other legal matters for small trucking companies, he outlines the quote-unquote right to set off or offset freight claims with future loads that some brokers seek to include in their contracts with carriers. Essentially, as he explains in the book, and here I'll read it a little directly from it, increasingly, customer-drafted contracts expressly allow the shipper or broker to withhold freight charges, a practice known as set-off, against cargo claims it believes to be valid. Seton's book bolds and underlines the following sentence, offering a warning to carriers about such language. This practice is intolerable, and you cannot afford to accept it. How's it work in the real world? Here's Seaton explaining to me the practices of some of the more unscrupulous in the brokerage space, who in the event of even a whiff of a valid cargo claim then work to build up more business with the carrier with the expectation of never having to pay for it, inciting a set-off or offset. If they think you've got a claim, they give you five more loads. Okay? So they can build up the receivables because they have the right of offset. So they do it all the time, and it's a sucker's game. So it, it's what you sign. The way to combat this with a broker is to not sign any contract that enables offsetting like this. Seton says carriers can insist on contract language specifying no offsetting of cargo claims, and with an added layer, as he put it, quote, 
If you do offset, you forfeit any right to the cargo claim. Tough stuff there, and Seaton's seen a lot of it over recent years. In a presentation in a past series of online webinars conducted by Overdrive's sister CCJ Fleet Publication, he named the practice of contracts stipulated offsetting of claims one of the quote-unquote dirty baker's dozen of 13 unacceptable broker practices carriers should keep a lookout for. You can find more about these via his website, transportationlaw.net. Quite correction here to that audio. Of those two loads that Vitaretta hauled for Bennett, only one, the second hauled load after the prospective cargo claim load, went unpaid. And also as an update, the most recent I've heard from her on the status of the case was that the cargo insurance company had denied the claim, uh, so Vitaretta was preparing to refile with the broker's surety, potentially for payment. Finally, the number one most listened to overdrive radio podcast of the year. Drum roll, please. Okay, maybe not. Anyway, it's the last one we release, oddly enough, uh, featuring my talk with our own James Gillette about a story he wrote for the December magazine about EPA's enforcement cases against shops performing emissions delete type of work. And just what, if anything, an owner-operator who's done this, had this type of work done, or done other kinds of ECM retunes, needs to be worried about. Again, if anything. Gillette laid out the reality of some cases concluded this year that did ultimately affect the equipment owners involved and not just the shops doing the work. Our news editor Matt Cole kind of monitors the wire for these crime reports and things particularly from the DOT and uh, this uh, this news release that we received uh, pointed to an enforcement case that was done in conjunction by DOT and EPA um, where they had yeah, busted a, a uh, it's called Switzer's Garage, but as my understanding, it was also sort of uh, connected to some other companies, um, you know, some other uh, fleets and things. But, yeah, it was kind of a bust by EPA uh, and DOT for uh, illegally modifying emissions control systems. And from what I gathered from this, it was sort of an extreme example in terms of uh, they were seriously just, you know, tampering with the emissions control systems, whether that was plating off the EGR or, um, you know, completely disabling the uh, after treatment system on these trucks. But just so happened that a uh, yeah, two truck owner operator named Dennis Paul Hamas is, I believe, how you pronounce it or something along those lines, uh, had had work done at that shop and got caught up in it. And, and it seemed to catch fire with a lot of our readers, you know, obviously um, something that, um, you know, that, that they were very interest, interested in. And so we started exploring it a little further. Um, and, and I wanted to talk to as many folks as I could from the uh, the companies that that do engine alterations that are traditionally fairly popular with owner operators, such as uh, altering ECMs to improve horsepower or fuel economy. Um, you know, talk to manufacturers about uh, modern emissions control systems and how they operate within the engine and how owner operators and or shops can navigate altering their engine as they wish without um, crossing the line into illegal tampering or, or, you know, crossing the line of of violating the clean air act or any other emissions regulations. And uh, I tried to, I tried to solicit uh, information from, from owner operators too, but as you can imagine that, you know, I, I don't, I think a lot of folks were hesitant to discuss what they do, to their engine or have done to their engine just out of, you know, fear of, of being targeted by, 
EPA or DOT. And uh, I think a big, a big kicker in this whole thing is that, you know, owner operators uh, a lot of times have secondhand equipment. You know, they, I know a lot of owner operators buy new equipment, but a lot of owner operators buy used equipment too. And so as, as more late model engines have filtered down from, from uh, the firsthand market into the secondhand market and are becoming more common uh, among owner operators and very small fleets, you know, talking, uh, you know, let's say, 2008 to 2014 model trucks, um, you know, owner operators now are, are increasingly running equipment that have the uh, emissions control components like EGR and SCR systems. And so it's kind of what we, what I want to do is take a look at, you know, how can owner operators uh, still uh, do what they want to their equipment, but, but not run the risk of, getting into territories where they could be fined or have enforcement action taken against them uh, over these issues. And, and really kind of what we found is there's increasingly, there's, you know, not much that owner operators can do outside of operating within the, the engine manufacturer's recommendations for altering their engine, whether that's upgrading horsepower and that type of thing. And, and so it, it was kind of, um, you know, I kept I kept trying to find information to, with all the folks I talked to, like, well, what can owner operators do and how do they know if they cross the line? And a lot of a lot of people, particularly from the manufacturer side, said, well, you shouldn't really be doing anything. And that's that's kind of the sobering, sobering truth of it. There's more to it all than just that, of course. Uh, and you can find the full podcast as well as all as well as all these episodes via overdriveonline.com slash overdrive radio. Uh, on the Channel 19 uh, blog on the New Year's Eve uh, edition, you'll find uh, you'll find a, a playlist featuring all of them as well uh, via our SoundCloud profile. And you can find all the Overdrive podcasts uh, in, in your in feeds via uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're looking forward to more in the new year. Hope you are too. And until then, owner operators. Here's wishing a healthy and profitable 2019 to all of you. And, as always, stay safe out there.